Well, good evening, church. Won't you open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel? We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7 today. As you're going there, I'm going to open in a word of prayer. Lord God, we, we do thank you for um, the boost of this meeting with you before we go into our work weeks. Lord, we thank you for the chance to round off this day with singing, uh, joyful singing about your greatness and your goodness. We thank you for the chance to come to your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we do so again, that you would build us up. We pray that you would open our eyes. We ask that you would help us to see you and that we would love again what we see. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Uh, life is full of its uh, disappointments, um, but as Christians, the hardest of those can sometimes be when uh, the hardest of the disappointments you face can be when God says no to something uh, that you have in your heart, something that is what you would believe to be good, something maybe that you want to do for Him that you think is good, something that you desire for righteous reasons, and God closes doors. Maybe you've got a Joshua 24 sort of dream for your family. You know, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But after years and years of labor and prayer, your, your child grows up and wants nothing to do with Christ. Maybe you have particular aspirations for the ministry or a ministry, but you, you're knocking and knocking and the door doesn't seem to be opening. Maybe your heart for the church is for its growth, its health, its conversions, and yet it seems to be dwindling. Maybe you lose somebody through bereavement or a surprising divorce and dreams that you had for your life come crashing down. And there are times in life where David's words in Psalm 37 verse 4 seem to mock your experience. David says there, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, there was a time in David's life here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where um, those words he spoke in Psalm 37 seem in contradiction to his own experience, at least on the surface. So last weekend, we were in Psalm chapter 18. We looked at a peacetime psalm David wrote after the trouble that he faced with Saul, after becoming king most likely. David was in between, <laughs> in between trials. Sorry, my wife is chasing my daughter right out the church here. <laughs> I, I tried to concentrate. <laughs> David wrote Psalm 18 as a peacetime psalm, in between trials, a prayer of thanksgiving where David declares God's character like a, a drink of cool water in the shade in order to prepare his heart for whatever it is that might come in life. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is another peacetime snapshot of David's life. 2 Samuel 7, 1 and 2, it says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Can picture it, he's out on his balcony with Nathan the prophet on deck chairs, they're sitting, they're, they're resting, legs kicked up, maybe coffee in hand. 
David is staring up at the cedar rafters and he looks over the city and sees the tabernacle and thinks to himself, how is it that I live in luxury while God dwells in a drafty old tent? And Nathan says what any pastor would say when somebody is thinking about being generous with the house of the Lord. He says in verse three, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Indeed, David's desire here in 2 Samuel 7 is a good desire. It flowed from a heart of love and worship. It's the same heart of extravagant worship that we see in the Gospels. We, we preached on it a, a few months ago. Mary walking into that party room where Jesus is present, breaking open that alabaster jar full of expensive perfume and anointing the Lord with it. It's that same heart that David has. But there's a surprising turn of events in this chapter. God is going to send Nathan back to David with the message, you cannot be the one. You cannot be the one to build my temple. Now, 2 Samuel 7 is a very important chapter in the Bible. It's got broad theological implications. It contains what we call the Davidic covenant, and much ink has been spent on it. My goal tonight is not to touch on any of those theological debates. All I want to do is pull out from this passage, from the interaction between David and his God, pull out a few things for our hearts that will guide us in our service and guide us in our disappointments as well. The first section, verses 4 to 17, is God's covenant with David. And rather than focusing on the covenant, I want to focus tonight on the God of the covenant. That serves as an anchor for David and and everything he does for God, and it should serve as an anchor for us as well, what we learn about God in this passage. And then in the second section, verses 18 to 29, David responds to the revelation he's received, and it's an example to us, a heartfelt response to who God is. I didn't read everything up front. What I want to do is read devotionally as we go, chunks as we go, and allow those moments to to allow the Word of God to sink into our hearts. So let's look, number one, at the covenant-making God. There are three aspects of God's response to David's desire that we should look at together, three anchors for our heart in all of our service, three truths about His character in all of our disappointments. Number one, we see His condescension. So David wants to build the temple, and God says this, go, He says to Nathan, go and tell him, From verse 4, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word? With any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And I can't help but sense a certain playfulness in God here. David, are you worried about me? Worried about the fact that I dwell in a tent? I've never complained before. Never asked any of the previous leaders for a house of cedar. Let's make sure we understand, David, up front, who is it that needs whom? Let's clarify a few things about my glory. Cedar is for hamsters, David. My streets are made of gold. 
Psalm 50 verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Now, God is not saying that the temple is unimportant. He will have Solomon build it, but his people need to understand that the temple is no more fit to contain or to display his glory than a tent. And hear what God wants us to hear about him in this passage. His people wandered in the desert, he says. They dwelled in tents. They sojourned in search of a home. And Yahweh was content to dwell with them there, to move with them in their midst, to shepherd and to lead them. God is highlighting for our wonder this evening the glory of condescending love. God's glory isn't in the quality of the structure in which he dwells. It's in the action that he gave beyond imagination that the Lord of glory would be content to be a pilgrim in a tent for the redemption of his people. Our hearts have to settle in this love. It is a love we will never fully comprehend. We will spend the rest of our lives. We will spend the rest of eternity. And we won't be able to exhaust this love in our meditation of it, in our awe of it. This is the love of God for us. And believers, this is His love. Foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. As we sing here at this church, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. For that ransom he went to the cross, Slain by death, the God of life, that is the price of our redemption. In all of our service to the King, our hearts have to be set on the truth of His condescending love. In all of our dreams and everything that we do for Him, everything that we want to do that is good and beautiful, to the praise of God, we must never forget this, that our God is not a God in need. He is not a God in need. He gives Himself to us as the greatest good of our lives. So number one, we see condescension. Number two, we see grace. And notice the language of Yahweh here, how many times he says in this next section, I have or I will. We're talking about past and future grace. Verses eight to 11. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly." From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Peace and rest he's given to David and given to Israel. Peace and rest he promises as their future. I chose you. I took you. 
I've been with you every difficult step of the way. I've protected you. And I love what he says. David, you would build me a house. I'm building you a house. Many temples have been built to many different gods in the history of the world. And there are examples of plenty in ancient religions of kings building temples to their gods and in response receiving promises, promises of victory and prosperity. There's an old an ancient Sumerian tale of a god called Enlil choosing a king and commissioning, commissioning him to rebuild a fallen temple. And not only did that king rebuild Enlil's temple, but he, it says in the, this ancient tale, he refurbished the palace of Mrs. God, Mrs. Enlil. And so Enlil blessed the fate of this king to distant days. In Egypt, there's a victory hymn of Tutmos III that records the words of the god Amon-Re, rehearsing the victories that he provided to Tutmos he says, who erected my dwelling place. Amon Ray says, I have established you upon the throne of Horus for millions of years that you might lead the living for eternity. Ezra Haddon of Assyria rebuilt the temple of Asher that had fallen into decay. And he says he built it for this reason, for length of days, for the stability of my reign, for the welfare of my posterity and the safety of my priestly throne. For the overthrow of my enemies, for the success of the harvest of Assyria, for the welfare of Assyria. This quid pro quo that is apparent in the interactions between the gods and their kings is light years away from the experience, that the interaction that we see between Yahweh and his covenant king, David, in this passage. David doesn't build the temple. He won't get to build the temple, but God's blessing is still promised to him. What David can declare in verse 22, there is none like you. There is no God like you. God's grace isn't bought by our actions. It is given freely as a gift, and we live in response to that grace. We don't live or serve in order to earn that grace. His promise is not one that we buy through our service. John Piper wrote this. He says, the most practical truths any Christian can know that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all for you. Nothing will have more important practical impact on the way that you use your money, spend your leisure time, pursue your vocation, rear children, deal with conflict, or handle anxiety. Heartfelt confidence that the sovereign God is working everything together for your good out of sheer grace affects every area of your life. We don't serve in order to gain grace. We serve because we love grace. We love what we have received. And when the good that we had imagined or dreamed doesn't transpire in our lives, we trust that God's plans are always better and that grace will always mark His plans. The God who needs nothing from me is the God who gives. He gave up his son for us all. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So in our service and in our disappointments, we believe that God's grace will be for us more than sufficient for all of our need and our longing. Is his condescension, is his grace. Number three, we see God's constancy in the next section. His constancy. 
Despite saying no to David's request, God has a promise for David, a grace that is greater than all he could possibly imagine. What is this house that he will build for David? Verses 12 to 17. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. A promise, a throne established forever. Steadfast love shown to a son after him. The promise that God gave to David is one that extends beyond his death. It is stronger than the iniquity of Solomon, than the iniquity of David, than the iniquity of the kings of Judah. It is something that time will not change, will not take away. I love this language of promise given here to Solomon. Now David knew his fair share of trouble with regards to wayward sons, didn't he? But God is saying here, the covenant that I'm making with you, David, is stronger than that. It is stronger than their sin. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Now, in this passage, we know that there's a, a hint of something else, the hint of a, a bigger picture, another son that will come, a son who will secure this promise and guarantee the promise for David. Solomon would go on to build a temple for God, but the greater son would be the temple of God's presence with man to the praise and honor of God. The iniquity of David and Solomon and the, the sons, his, the kings of Judah would be great, but the promise would not be threatened by that sin, for the greater son was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53, 5. God's constancy to his children is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and it is all the hope that we need in our weaknesses, in our disappointment, in our service. And this revelation of who God is, this covenant-making God, was all that David needed for rest and for joy and for peace. And so let's turn our attention briefly now as we close to David's heartfelt response. Let's tune our hearts to joy as we did again this morning. David's heartfelt response, just two things. Number one, we see David rehearsing the goodness of God. God has revealed himself to David, and so he rehearses that goodness in verses 18 to 24. Then the king David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? 
For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. And there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And in this little section, we see a priority in David's heart as he comes into the presence of God. It says he went in after this revelation. He went in and sat before the Lord. Revelation leads to this desire in David. I just want to be with you in your presence. This narrative begins. It begins with David wanting to do something for God, which was a good desire, something out of love. And it ends with David sitting at God's feet, stunned by the grace of God, what God has done for him. And that's what he does. He goes in and he meditates on God's grace. He rehearses God's goodness. Who am I? I'm a nobody, but you have loved me. You have loved your people, he says. You've established us for yourself. We belong to you. What grace is that? We didn't deserve it. Verse 21, it was because of your promise and according to your own heart. And so verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. So when we experience life's confusions and disappointments. This is what we do. We return. We return to the truth that we've heard, the word that he's given to us, what we've heard with our ears and believed in our hearts. Our hearts tend to stray from the truth. They stray certainly because of the disappointments we face. That's why David commands his soul in Psalm 103, verse 2 to 5. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Peace and joy and hope and comfort. The ability to, as we discussed this morning, count it all joy, it flows from this habit. We keep coming back to this truth, keep coming back to his feet, learning again the truth about who he is and his heart for us. And that's what David does. Number two, what we see him do is pray the promise. Verses 25 to 29. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant 
so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. I love David's response. You have promised to build me a house. Therefore, my heart takes courage to pray this prayer. And what is his prayer? Lord, do as you have spoken. Do what you've said you would do. He prays the promise back to God. Is, is David reminding God? Like somehow God might have forgotten in, in the few hours since he gave this promise? Is David maybe a little uncertain that God will come through? So he brings up the words of the promise just to remind God, you've, you've made a contract now. You know, like the way our earthly children catch us out in our promises. They have minds like memories like elephants. David isn't uncertain. He is certain and he knows. Verse 28, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. So why then does he pray the promise back? This is worship. This is heart alignment. David is setting his heart on the purposes of God, in God's presence. David wants what God wants. His desire is God's glory. Verse 25 and 26, do as you have spoken and your name will be magnified forever. When the things that he ordains are confusing or disappointing, when his answer is no, we look again to the bigger picture of his condescension, his grace, his constancy, his glory, we sit again in his presence and align our hearts with his goodness. And then we get up and we go assured in our God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the life of David. We thank you for what we can learn about our, our hearts in the heart of David. We thank you for what we can learn about what true worship looks like. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to David and to us. We thank you that you are the covenant-making God, that you are constant in your promise and that your promise stands over our lives, that there's not a day that goes by that we don't walk in your promise. We thank you for your grace that has been poured out over our lives, that we have the privilege the wonderful privilege of being priests in your house, of serving you, the Creator. May we not take it for granted. We thank you for this grace and mercy. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your condescension. We thank you that you took on flesh, that you have ransomed and redeemed our lives from the pit. And we pray that you would help us to serve you again this week with joy for your glory. Amen.